0: Hello, and welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude podcast. The following sermon was preached by me, Peter Bell, at All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church, part of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America denomination. You can find All Saints RPC at 331 North Berry Street, Brea, California, 92821, which is also linked in the show notes. Our worship service is at 10 a.m., followed by a catechism class at 11.45 a.m. May the Lord bless you through this sermon. This is helpful. So I want to begin with a question. I want to ask you, how do you choose your friends? Think about that first. How do you choose your friends? For you kids, I bet your list is pretty short. Do they play with me? And then you stop. As you get older, you probably know your list kind of gross. Goes from playing with me, maybe talking with me, to like, do they align with this with me? Do I work with them? Do I like them? But if you're honest, I, I bet most of you, because I do, you have a friend you keep around, not so much because you like them or you enjoy them. Actually, you probably find them kind of annoying, but because they have a huge house. That's why you like them. Or they have a gorgeous pool that you're like, I, I, I don't have a pool. We don't have a community pool. I want to swim somewhere. We've actually, we, we talked about this like a month ago. It's like, we need a friend who has a pool. And you probably have something similar to that. Or they have a huge theological library. They're like, I don't have that many books. I'm going to go check out their library. Like, They're kind of not nice, but I like their library. Their library is pretty cool. Or they throw incredible parties. And the little party favors are like our wines and fruits and stuff. And you're like, I like them because of what the stuff that they give me. You see, the, with a lot of these, like you'll kind of like, leave off. Like, oh, they're annoying, but they give me stuff. If it wasn't for what they provide you, you wouldn't be friends with them. If you're really honest with yourself. If they weren't like wealthy, they didn't have all this stuff. You're like, you know, like, I kind of like my friends more. We treat Jesus, I think, like this rich friend. Very often. We, we like keeping him around because he, he, we think he, like, he does stuff for us. Rather than beholding him as the divine Lord incarnate. Yeah, we, we, we think, yeah, he's done a, a bunch of miracles. He's done some cool stuff. We hear testimonies of those who confess his name and how incredible their lives turn out. We're like, oh, he's he does that for you? It's like, maybe he does that for me. That's pretty cool, too. How close their family becomes. And so you think, you know, if, if Jesus did that for them, he's like, maybe he'll do that for me, too. Well, what does that show? It's like, I want him for the things he does for me, not, the, not, not him. Or maybe you like Jesus, and this hits home for me, and I'm going to guess this hits home for some of you. You like Jesus because you like debating about Jesus. you like, oh, there's some cool stuff I can debate about him. You love discussing Jesus, maybe a little less so communing with Jesus, praying to Jesus, reading about Jesus. I think this hits home. In John 4, Jesus kind of asks this question. He doesn't ask all these questions, but his it's one little package question is kind of like asking all these questions to this royal official. And he asks you the same. Do you, do you believe in me because of what I do or because of who I am? And we come from John 4, 1 to 42, which Jesus talks to the, to the very, 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 very lowest in society. Already kind of low in society as women, even lower the woman as Samaritan woman. You kind of like, don't get any lower than, than this. And the her question's for Jesus. And now you go to this royal official, because it's actually, it's a, it's a royal official. It's not just an official. He he's probably comes from Caesar. That's the that's best guess. He's not Jewish. He's probably Roman. Because usually when John talks about somebody, he usually includes their ethnicity, in some way, but he doesn't for the royal official. And then next week, because this is sandwiched right between the Samaritan woman and then John 5, which is his healing on the Sabbath. We're going to see some connection between these two. And so what we're going to see is first the search for faith, verses 43 to 45. He leaves Samaria, with many of the town believing upon him on account of the woman's word. And finally, he makes his way to the hometown. But if you know John 1, his hometown doesn't accept him. And he even says this. "Is like, I I know this is the case. They're not going to accept me. So the big question we have to ask is, is he going to find anyone who believes in him? That's the big question. And then second is subject of faith, verses 46 to 50. Jesus asked the royal official the same question I just asked you. Do you want me, or do you want the things that I do? And lastly, as a result of faith, verses 51 to 54. If you notice something, does a royal official ever meet his son after asking for healing? No. There's no reunion of him and the son, at least not that John tells you. And it's, it's interesting because he, he trusts in Jesus without ever seeing his son, at least how John presents it. And then he tells his whole house, he tells his whole household, and then they believe him too. And so I hope you hear this throughout. Christ, like the Son, is your new creation wholeness. Like our, our full health by faith. And we're gonna start this with point one: search. For faith. So if you look at verse 43, on the heels of Jesus's ministry with the Samaritans and many coming to faith in him, which again, is that what he expects? Is that what anybody expects? It's like the little joke that we said, if you want to go to Los Angeles and you stop by Luke's house on the way, that's, that's like what going to Samaria is like. That's, that's San Bernardino. Like, Why would you go an hour away to go down to Los Angeles? That's, that, that's what Jesus is doing. And now he heads to Galilee, and it connects these two stories, for Jesus was heading to Galilee in John one or John four one. That was his original place, but he goes through Samaria, so they're kind of connecting these stories. And look what John says, because it's it's kind of it's what we call p- parenthetical comment. So it's you might have parentheses around the sentence about Jesus' interaction with his fellow countrymen. Because he literally goes out of his way before landing in Galilee because Jesus knows my people don't accept me. So it's like, maybe Samaria will. Because they're not, they're, not, they're not full Jewish. They're probably half Gentile, half Jewish in some sense. His own people are Galileans. That's where Jesus is from. That, that's his hometown. That, that's the place of his birth. This is John 1 all over again. He came to his own, and his own don't accept him. So now we figure out, Are his own going to accept him? So he first journeys with the midday heat of Samaria, those considered impure before he lands in Galilee. It's it's kind of like he's trying to give himself a pep talk. He's like getting ready. He's about to enter into Galilee. He's like, am I going to do this? Am I going to do this? It's like, I don't know if they're going to accept me. Because he knows Galilee like the the Judean countryside. And all of Jerusalem, they treat him as a blasphemer. You make yourself God. You're you're taking on this messiahship really seriously. I'm not sure if you're the Messiah. But he finally enters Galilee, his original destination at the beginning of chapter 4, and he, he basically spends the rest of his time in Jerusalem after John 5. So this is one of the last places he stops before he kind of really really enters into his, his Jerusalem ministry. However, notice notice how the Galileans received Jesus in verse 45. You have to know, Galilee is, is not the cool part of Jerusalem. That's not, like, the hip place to go to. It's, Galilee, if I can describe it, it's, it's kind of like Compton from a couple de- decades ago or, like, South Central today. It's like, that's not the place you go to in the middle of the night. That's, that's kind of what Galilee is like. Those in, those in Beverly Hills, if you want to think, they, like, kind of look down on their noses to where Jesus is from. They're like, ah, that's not the place I would go to. you really want to hit the people of Jesus, you'll go to Rome. You'll go right to the holy temple of Jerusalem. That's where you really want to get a lot of people. So Jesus is kind of going against this. And they receive him, but why do they receive him? They saw all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Do you know what feast that is? John tells you about it. It's the wedding. This is the wedding in Cana. It's this feast is the wedding in Canada. It's probably, it's probably a big place. Again, Galilee is not like what well, we think of cities. We think of Brea, 100,000 people. Santa Ana, 350,000 people. Galilee maybe had like 200. These are not big cities. So when they had a wedding, everyone goes to the wedding. The entire town goes to the wedding. It's a huge festival. So they saw what he did there. They're like, oh, you're, you're, the, you're the guy who did this stuff. I I saw you. That was really good wine. Can you do your your, uh, miracle again? I want more wine. So word spread about this. (coughs) And the bridegroom who got all the credit. Because remember, Jesus leaves, kind of ditches town, and then says, that guy did it. Bridegroom gets all the credit. So Jesus comes back to his hometown after the conversion of the Samaritan village. And so we ask, will he find the same faith here? This brings us to point two subjects of faith. And now John explicitly links, it was kind of like hazy at first, but now he explicitly links what's about to happen to what he did at the wedding at Cana, because look at verse 46. John tells you, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine. Yeah, when the gospel writers say something, it's not just a throwaway comment. not just like, oh, it was a Tuesday, and then I went over here to go buy wine. Like this, this means something. This actually means something for our story. He's, he's alerting you to what's about to happen and saying what happened in Canaan and Galilee is like what's about to happen here. The water turning into wine is like what you're about to read. He's saying, if, if you have a lens, I want you to read it through this lens. I'm about to do something similar. Because when Jesus took the stone jugs, from the wedding of Cana, or wedding at Cana for the purification for the Jewish priests, and he overflowed them with wine. We now hear of a royal official, kind of the same ability and kind of the same status as those before. But unlike the Samaritan woman, who's the immediately previous narrative, this royal official is is an elite, not kind of low society, not the not the one if if Jesus is coming by a woman like. Everybody's thinking, why are you talking to a woman alone? That's, you don't do that in Middle Eastern cultures. You don't have a single guy, you don't have a single woman talking to each other, especially not of two different ethnicities. That just doesn't happen. But we, we see that today, and that's the case 2,000 years ago. But now he comes to a, a royal official, which also, again, this royal official shouldn't be talking to Jesus. Who's his allegiance to? Caesar. He's talking to this other guy who's making lordship claims. Neither would anyone have expected this is who Jesus went to. If he's going to take down the royal imperium, it's kind of what Jews thought of this day, he's going to take down Rome. Why is he talking to them? Why is he kind of like consorting with them? Why is he linking arms? If he's about to take down the royal imperium, why is he about to convert them? If he's supposed to tear them down, why is he about to convert them? This royal official was probably one of those who heard of what Jesus had done at the wedding. Either he's guarding the city or he lives in the city, something. Probably, he probably doesn't live in the city because this is backwaters. Probably one of like his districts that he guards. But he's got his son's illness kind of, kind of in the back of his mind. So in verse 47, when this, when this man hears what Jesus is making his way up to Galilee, his, his heart starts beating a little faster. He's like, you're the guy at the wedding. You're, you're the guy who turned water into wine. You're, you're the guy who, who made this feast really good. You can imagine him thinking, can it, can it really be? The, the guy who turned water into wine, I, I heard about that. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, maybe he can heal my son. Which coming from the royal official, that's, that's not what they should think. They're, they're allegiance to Caesar and Caesar alone. And he's thinking this stuff about Jesus. And note, too, John usually indicates, like I said, that somebody's Jewish by calling them Jewish. Calls Nicodemus, kind of the, the royal, like a, a Jewish priest of, of some sort, Jewish scribe of some sort, the Samaritan woman. He, he, usually, he usually labels them. He doesn't for the royal official. But this is a royal official. And the only context this royal official has for asking Jesus to heal his son is the water turning into wine. That's it. From all that we know from John, that's all that he knows. So this man has something of faith. That's not big, but it's something. Another thing you've got to consider. So Jesus is a priest. He walks around, he's a priest. Can a priest touch a dying boy? No, that impurifies him. Can't touch him. Can't do anything with him. So when he's asking him to come heal my boy, you're thinking like he's about to impurify himself. Jesus, he can't touch this. He'll be impure for seven days. Can't walk into the temple. But we're we're kind of used to this today. We're like we touch our ailing kids. We touch our spouses who are sick. You're like, oh, touching's not a big deal. Back then, like, if you're a priest, you do not touch anything that's sick because you can't do anything. This is no ordinary sickness. He's not just running like a slightly high fever. He's on his deathbed. He's breathing his last breaths. This is deathly sickness. And if you know your Old Testament really well, This should remind you of something. It should remind you of Elijah and the widow's son. Because the scene is just about the same. This is 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. Because there's a lot of parallels. Elijah is asked the same thing by the widow. Elijah, come on over here. Heal my son. Because his son is not yet dead. He's kind of sickness leading towards death. Walks over to the boy. Touches the boy, calls for Yahweh to help him or heal him, and he's healed. And so we're thinking like that same thing's going to happen with Jesus. He's going to go walk down to the boy. He's going to touch him and heal him, invoke Yahweh's name, and then he'll be good. What happens here? Look at Jesus' question, verse 48. The royal official asks for healing. What does Jesus ask? Like, sure, we'll do it. He asked for faith. Yeah, when Jesus answers questions, he's not usually asking the question that they ask or answering the question they ask. He answers the question they should have asked. So Jesus is answering the question he should have asked. Asking the same question asked of him by the Jewish officials, this is John 2.18. Right after the wedding of Cana, and he, uh, he cleans, purifies the temple at the end of John 2. The Jewish officials in John John 2.18 ask him, what sign do you show forth to us that you're doing these things? Jesus turns the question back to the royal officials. Like, are you like one of these guys? Are you looking for the signs that I do, the things that I do, the miracles that I do? You can kind of hear Jesus asking, like we've asked before, do you want me or the things that I do? You're like, he's just a cool miracle worker. He does lots of cool stuff. He kind of wows me. That's why I want him. So let me ask you the same question. Do you want Jesus, or do you want the things that Jesus does for you? And we so often think in these terms, you probably thought the same stuff I did, especially if you're new to the faith, but we can also think this stuff throughout. What can Jesus do for me? If your friends ask this, hey, what can Jesus do for me? And maybe you're beat down, you're spiritually dry, your life has fallen apart, you're, you're splitting open at the seams, and so your prayers, they start getting really urgent. They start getting really like fervor, a lot of energy behind them. Or we like Jesus, but we don't get a lot of those spiritual wow moments. Like we see our friends on social media who like, who like really have things going for them. Like, their life is going great, they're listening to great stuff, they're listening to great sermons all the time, and things are just happening for them a lot, all the time. And you're like, why can't my life be more like that? Why can't it be more spectacular with Jesus? You're, 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 you're saying, much like I, I think, like, my life is pretty ordinary. Like there's not a lot of wow moments. This worship can get monotonous, and you think the gospel message is how I get in but it's not how I stand, It's not how I get better, It's not how I learn more. I like, what's after the gospel? Like, what can I, what, what can you give me after the gospel? I need more. So we start asking Jesus, what's next? Like, this is great, but like, do you have anything better? Okay, I need more. Like Israel's exodus from Egypt, their, their clothes aren't even dirty, from their wilderness wanderings and they, they say thanks for our deliverance but do you have something better like at least we didn't have to wait for manna coming from the heavens we can just get it from our egyptian overlords they ask the same thing what, what can you do for us and this is how we treat jesus don't think of anybody else think of yourself this is how this is how i treat jesus this is how you treat jesus more often than we were willing to admit we, we treat Jesus as the Son of God who does wonders, not the wonderful Son of God. We, we, we flip it. So Jesus asked the same question. And look how the official responds in verse 49. Some translations deaden, I think, his response. They, they say, sir. Uh, and I, I think it's better to keep this Lord because it, they use the term for Lord. Because sometimes this title could be used as, as um, you think of like, Mister. It's usually how curiosity is used outside of the New Testament. It's, it's more like Mr. Somebody. But I think here it's used both ways. Because the royal official responds, Lord. In verse 48. So Jesus said, unless you see signs, verse 49, the official said to him, better translated, Lord, come down before my child dies. Which coming from the royal official, is really odd. If you were another royal official walking around, you heard one of your friends, your colleagues, talking to this itinerant Jewish minister that you don't, you don't know. You don't know the Old Testament. You don't know what he's come for. But you do know who is Lord. You see him talking to Jesus as Lord. You're like, hold on, buddy. Caesar's Lord. That's who's Lord. But he hears this guy say, no, Lord. There's only one person for if you're Roman, only one person or semi-divine person actually is given this title, and that's Caesar. And so, a royal official calling Jesus Lord, all these people are like, How could you betray Caesar like that? You're calling Jesus Lord. And notice what he leaves out because he first asked the question, actually, kind of makes the statements at verse 40, 47. He says he went down to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he (coughs) was at the point of death. That's verse 47. Then, verse 49, what does he leave out? Lord, come down and see my son. Sir, come down before my child dies. Healing's left out. Come down. Fair enough Jesus recognizes true though small it's not it's not big faith it's not kind of theologically informed faith but it's faith he recognizes this and grants it but what does he not do doesn't walk down to the royal official son doesn't lay his hand on his royal official son and pronounce in Yahweh's name, be healed. That's what Elijah does in 1 Kings 17. That's I mean, that's probably the background for this. Doesn't hover over, doesn't hover over the ailing's son's dying body and evoke Yahweh's name. He just speaks. He doesn't even say be healed. He says, Go. Your son is healed. It doesn't even speak to the son directly. Just tells the royal official, go, your son is healed. Sight unseen, without moving a muscle besides his lips. He says, he's healed. Go. Because what he says accomplishes what he intends. Not a prophet, not a king. Is more than that. He's, when he speaks, things get done. Which, if you know Genesis 1 really well, it remind you of Genesis 1. Let there be, and it's not like he has to kind of talk to the heavens, like, you know, let's talk about this. Do you really want to be like this? How how hard do I have to work? It's no, when he says it, the thing's done. So the man, the royal official, believed. Does, and doesn't have to go check on his son, call for servants or cooperate Jesus' words. He just he just believes. You're right. So he's not looking for signs and wonders. He just trusts. And now the third person to talk to Jesus, because the first one we have is Nicodemus, the second one is the Samaritan woman, and the third one is royal official. His dialogue shortens. He says two things to this royal official. Probably in the Jewish mind, the furthest away from Jesus. You're a Roman royal official under Caesar's charge. Surely you could never believe, but he believes. There's really no like conversation. Whereas Jesus spends a lot of time with Nicodemus, who doesn't get it. Samaritan a woman who kind of gets it. He says two lines, and the official gets it. Again, he goes from a pure Jew, that's Nicodemus, kind of the highest of the highest, purest of all pure, should get this stuff right, to a half Jew. Lowest a society. Nobody cares about her. They're probably not Jewish at all, and then gets it. That's not at all who we expect to believe in Jesus. And this should be pretty instructive for us. This royal official seeks not what Jesus does, which is heal his son, but seeks Jesus. What does this mean for who Jesus is and who he is for you? Brings us to our last point: result of faith. Finally, in verse 51, is when he goes down to his son, already believing what Jesus said. He's not going down to investigate, did, like did this happen. But can you imagine what's going on through his head? Like, put yourself in his mind right now. After he's just talked to Jesus, he hasn't seen his son yet. Walking down to his son, <coughs> I-, I can imagine he's thinking. I believed what this man said that my child is healed. Is it true? Can he accomplish this? I've seen miracle workers do this, but they had to touch him. They had to go near him. They had to invoke some divine name. But I've never heard anybody just speak, and this thing's done. Can he really be the Messiah? He's probably thought, I've never met anybody who could just say things. Caesar can say things, but the things Caesar says don't actually happen. He has to have people do things for him. The royal official meets with the servants, but he doesn't ask them what happens. The servants tell him. He doesn't ask anything, he's just told. And the word here, he was recovering, is actually just the word for life. He lives, he's life. It's probably not like he's on his way to life. He's like he's he's alive. He's fully healed. It's not a process to heal him. He's healed. He lives. Doesn't ask his ser- servants though. If you look in verse fifty-two, he doesn't ask him, "Is my son healed?" He asked him, "When was he healed?" Doesn't ask if he's healed, but when is he healed? Remember back to the beginning of John four when Jesus reclines at the well in Samaria in the sixth hour. Right at the beginning of John 4. Now the royal official servants make known to him his healing happened on the seventh hour. And again, when we read the Gospels, everything matters. Because he's not just using a time marker. It is, but it's not just a time marker. He's not just like, oh, it's 1 p.m. Well, seven, seven, the seventh hour is 1 p.m. He's not just saying, oh, it happened 1 p.m. the other day. Like, no big deal. Seven's a big deal. Seven's a really big deal. Seven is a number for wholeness, for shalom, for well-being, for life. The Sabbath falls on the seventh day. The son was healed at the seventh hour because that's when all things are healed. He's showing forth this is what kingdom life, this is what new creation wholeness is all like. So sickness, death, fear, disease, nothing can stand in this. It's purified. And the royal official recalled when Jesus had spoken the word to him, and he knew it was at the seventh hour yesterday. He he traveled a day to get to his kid. Jesus doesn't proclaim the word and hope it's true. Doesn't even need to approach the child as Elijah had to in the Old Testament. He doesn't kind of conjure up some mystical speech, some divine formula. He doesn't fight. He's not trying to convince. He just speaks. And it happens. Unlike Elijah, who has to be with the child, who has to touch the child, and invoke. Yahweh's name. And Jesus says, I'm Yahweh, and I can say this. Jesus, the son of God, the same divine substance as Yahweh, speaks as Yahweh and says, this is done. And John doesn't even include the reunion. He doesn't even say when he met the son again. Until he lets us know that he himself believed and all of his household A household, mind you, that used to be under the the divine name of Caesar. Caesar is lord over this household. And now it's Jesus is lord over this household. Now the royal official, he probably proclaims, how else is the household going to know? They're not just going to see the sign. It's like, oh, yeah, this is what Jesus did. He has to tell them. This is because of Jesus. And so his household believes. So John ends this narrative by linking this miracle, number two, with the first miracle in verse 54. This is, he's like, this is like what I did at the wedding. John uses these markers to carry along. He uses seven miracle markers throughout the book of John, and this is number two. Because each and every one of these, they point you to the Messiahship of Jesus, his life death, and resurrection. Seventh hour at the end of John 4, when does the healing happen in John 5? The seventh day. So he's linking all of these together. So let me ask you a question. Have you confessed the name of Jesus? You don't have to have a big theological knowledge. You don't have to have all your schooling behind you. You don't have to come from a Christian family. Like this royal official, he comes from nothing. That's from a royal household, And also, are you looking for, for Jesus because he, he does things? And you heard like, oh, he did this for my friend. He healed this. He did this. So maybe, maybe he's helpful for me, too. Maybe he could do some stuff for me, too. He's not a simple, moralistic teacher. He's not just an option of one God amongst many gods. He's not competing for your affection. He, to, to be kind of frank, he doesn't care about your affection. He doesn't merely empower you to live a good life. Doesn't perform these signs and kind of peek back and says, did they, did they look? Did they listen? Maybe I could do some crazy stuff for you too. That's not the point. Jesus is showing he's the fullness of Godhead, dwelling bodily, of the same divine essence as Yahweh, the one whom Elijah invoked. He's like, I did that. I healed with Elijah. Do you believe in him? Or are you using him? You're hoping to see what he does versus communing with him. Because if you believe in Jesus, what's crazy is your faith will be turned into sight. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, you will actually see Jesus face to face. Your faith now will turn into sight. So it's not an either or, it's a now and then. Now faith, then sight because your faith will turn into sight. That's why you don't need sight right now. Your faith will turn into sight. Trust in Jesus that you might be spiritually healed, physically healed, spiritually healed, but it's most important spiritually healed. Be given his perfect righteousness because that's true spiritual healing, perfect righteousness. And that like this kid of the royal official, you will enjoy the seventh hour of your healing. You will enjoy wholeness, fruitfulness, and eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've shown to us in your word. Lord, that we (coughs) who are so used to sight in this world, are so used to seeing, proving, if we don't see it, we don't believe it. Lord, you go against the grain. You tell us to believe it and then see it. To trust you. That you are who you say you are. And that one day we will see you. You will make our our faith, our hope, all these things, all these immaterial things in this temporary world become eternally visible. We will be with you forever. We will see you. And you will see us. We will commune with you. Lord, our faith is so small like this royal official. Lord, we so often want to see the things that you do and we forget about communing with you. Lord, remind us that you're with us so we can commune with you. pray all this in your son's name. Amen.